Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm James Rogers, and you join me as I sit with my morning coffee in Solano, Italy. It's a beautiful day, perfect blue skies, it's a hard life, but I am here working because 77 years ago this month, Solano was the stage for Operation Avalanche, that ferocious battle on the beaches between Allied and Axis powers during the invasion of Italy that almost turned into catastrophe. Yet a year later, Allied forces would be faced with another catastrophe at Operation Market Garden, which took place in Arnhem in the Netherlands. In this podcast, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, Dan is in Arnhem, talking with one of the UK's preeminent historians of the Second World War, James Holland, along with author, historian and battlefield guide Paul Reed. And between them, they discuss the ferocious battle that was faced at Arnhem as Allied forces parachuted in to the town to take that vital bridgehead, known as the Bridge Too Far, to secure the crossing at the Rhine. Of course, that battle ends up being known as one of the greatest military failures, a catastrophe of the Second World War. And this podcast really does show you what can go wrong, will go wrong in times of conflict. standing in front of the bridge that proved to be the bridge too far what was tell me what was the intention behind this operation why were the allies so fixated on this bridge well this is the upper rhine and the point is if you can get across the rhine that is your kind of entry point into northern germany and the, the feeling was that if you can get into that northern part of Germany, then the route to Berlin is just going to be a whole load easier than if you were fighting your way through the sort of western part of central Germany and, and through the Ruhr and all the rest of it. So that's the point. It's this kind of sort of opportunity that's just sitting there saying, if you can get through here, you can have a much easier victory and maybe the war will be over by Christmas. But, but talk to me about the plan, which involved a very long, thin dagger blow into, into German-held territory. Yeah, so the idea is to have this sort of carpet of airborne troops securing this series of bridges. I think there's something like 11 or 12 bridges that they've got to get across. And then you've got 30 corps supported by two other corps either side of them who are then going to steam up uh, and, re- and, and support the airborne troops and, and get across all these bridges and force their way 
into northern Germany. That's the idea of it. So that what the airborne troops are doing is sort of creating this corridor, this sort of entry point for the British Army, 21st Army Group, to push on into northern Germany. That's the idea behind it. I mean, there's a, it's an incredibly complex plan. It's put together incredibly quickly. There's all sorts of sort of problems with this, because what happens if the Germans actually blow up one of these bridges along the way? And in fact, actually, they do at Somme. They do blow up one of the bridges. Um, you know, it's fraught with risk. But the potential gains are so great that it is considered worth a punt. And you have to remember when this decision is taken on the 10th of September, you know, they've just, you know, the, the end of the Normandy campaign is only kind of sort of three weeks before. And they've had this incredible surge, which is sort of finally ended on the 6th of September. So from the kind of, you know, the last week of August through to the 6th of September, they've just gone absolutely unbelievable distances. You know, the Germans seem to be on the run. They seem to be completely disorganised. And it just, it is a massive punt. Everyone knows it's a massive punt. It's a development from an earlier plan called Comet, which has been enlarged to create it, turn it into Market Garden, as, a, as the code name of the whole operation is. And it's just seen as, as, as a punt worth taking. Could you tell me about how personal was it to Montgomery? Was it his plan? So Montgomery, who is 21st Army Group commander and has just relinquished complete overall command of the ground forces to Eisenhower, I think on the 3rd of September, he thinks that the drive through the north of Germany is the best chance they have. That is the, the, the easiest route to winning the war in Germany. And there's also some politicking going on because the Americans are, are more numerous than the British are by this stage, by the kind of sort of early part of August 1944, they have suddenly overtaken the British in terms of boots on the ground. And that balance of kind of authority and power in this coalition, and there's, there's never a formal alliance between Britain and the United States, is, is starting to shift. And it is really important to Britain, which after all is part of Europe, whereas the United States isn't, is absolutely at the top table when it comes to the end of the war. No, no one's in any doubt that the war is going to come to an end. It's just how much longer it's going to go on, how much more destruction is going to be caused, how many more people are going to be killed. When it does come to an end, it's really important that Britain are at that top table. And, and so there is some political motivations for A, getting on with the war quickly. That's the, the number one. But B, that Britain plays a key part in that. And there is also... I think it's fair to say, Montgomery's ego, which is that he quite fancies being the kind of great victor that kind of relieves Berlin and all the rest of it. Talking about German strength in this area, what was here when the Allies were landing? Well, you've got two SS Corps here, um, or SS2 Corps, I should say, um, the 9th and 10th SS Panzer Divisions. And, you know, they've been really badly hammered. They, these, these divisions have been in Normandy. Uh, and they've been absolutely hammered. They're being slightly sort of reconstituted. They're, this is the moment where the Germans are sort of regaining their balance following the catastrophic defeat in Normandy at the end of, uh, at the end of August 1944. Uh, and they're just starting to sort of get themselves a bit more, more organised. Now, when the plans are being put through for uh, Market Garden, the planners absolutely know this. It's not like a Bridge Too Far movie, Cornelius Ryan's book, where Brian Urquhart sort of is, is the lone voice going, it's madness, you know, you mustn't do it. You know, a Spitfire has flown over and seen all these SS troops and rubbish, we don't care, we're ignoring that, that's all nonsense, Brian. I mean, that's not how it was. That reconnaissance flight that he talked about never actually happened, but they did know about the SS being here, but they just thought, so what? You know, we, we can deal with it. There was not a failure of intelligence gathering. There was a failure of intelligence processing. Paul, what was it like when 
that first wave landed just up the road here? Well, they came in by parachute and glider and their task was to move as quickly as possible to, towards Arnhem to, to take the bridge and the surrounding areas to secure that, to stop German counter-attacks overrunning it for when 30 Corps arrived to, uh, to link up with them. It went pretty smoothly. In, like from the off, I mean, they, land, they achieved surprise, right? They did. I mean, the landings were successful, but of course, they were a long way from the bridge. And the, the issue they had was that the time it was going to take them to get there, which gave the Germans the opportunity to react. And they did the counterattacks? They did. I mean, we, we see in the Second World War, the Germans are very, very good at um, improvising uh, un, under these circumstances. And they get together some scratch mobs of... Uh, what they call Kampfgruppers or battle groups from different units, SS amongst them, other types of units as well. And uh, these men form blocking units to block the advance of, uh, of the airborne forces trying to push into, uh, into Arnhem. So Market Garden begins, yep. troops being dropped, airborne troops dropped in this, along this corridor. Yep. How does it go further south? Well, this is really interesting, actually, as well, because we think of this as such a predominantly British operation, but actually there's three airborne divisions involved in Operation Market Garden, and, and actually Market is the airborne bit. And, and two of those divisions are American. You know, we, we forget that the 101st Airborne and the 82nd Airborne are both big part of this. And actually, I think it's 7,500 US airborne troops are dropped on D-Day of, of, of Market Garden, the 17th of September, and 5,000 British. So actually, there's more Americans dropped on, on the first day of Market Garden than there are British. So 101st Airborne is kind of around Eindhoven, where there's a series of, of, of bridges that they've got to take. Um, the 82nd Airborne is just down the road at Nijmegen in the Nijmegen area. And then the 1st Airborne Division is, is here at Arnhem. And Arnhem, of course, is, you know, this is the uh, sine qua non, I suppose, of, uh, of the bridges. This is the big one. This is the one that they absolutely need to get. But it has to also be said that every single one of those other bridges along the way is just as important because if they don't catch them and don't catch them intact, then 30 Corps, who've got to do this big 60-mile charge up and, and kind of arrive here and rescue the first airborne. So how do the landings go to the south? Yeah, so the landings to the south actually go pretty pretty well. I mean, you've got the 101st Airborne around Eindhoven, you've got the 82nd Airborne um, around Nijmegen, just down the road. I mean, it's literally a, a stone's throw away, about 12 miles or something like that from here. And then you've got first British Airborne here at, at Arnhem. And, and this is the most important bridge, I suppose, but all of the bridges are important in a way. Uh, and I guess the sort of, you know, second on the list of most important bridges is the one at Nijmegen, which is absolutely monster. It's kind of even bigger than that one, you know, even longer ramp. Uh, and is absolutely sort of key to the whole thing. So, you know, 82nd Airborne, they've got a huge responsibility as well. And what happens when they drop here? Things start to go wrong. Well, things unravel very, very quickly. I mean, the whole plan is sort of based on a series of assumptions, which actually then don't happen. I mean, first of all, that, you know, everyone's going to be able to land in exactly the right place on the right time, um, that the follow-up lifts are going to be on time, and of course, that the weather's going to be good for three whole days, that um, they're going to be able to, um, the whole of the first parachute brigade is going to be able to get to this bridge, no problem whatsoever, that the German resistance is going to be almost zero. Um, and none of those things happen. I mean, you know, it's incredibly foolhardy to assume that you're going to get three good days of clear weather 
in September in Northern Europe. I mean, you know, Goering found out that this was uh, not the case back in 1940 during the Battle of Britain. So, you know, there's precedent for that as well. Uh, and of course, what happens is the moment things start to unravel, then all those other assumptions start to unravel too. And with each unraveling, so the problems just start to mount. And what actually happens here is, is that they discover that, first of all, the resistance is much greater than, go than they think it's going to be. That they're quite a long way. The landing zones and drop zones are quite a long way, up to eight miles away from, from here. I mean, that's a good old stretch, it has to be said. Um, and although John Frost and his second battalion of the 1st Parachute Brigade do manage to get here, and there's about 130 engineers, there's another, there's um, others from the 1st Battalion as well, a company from the 1st Battalion managed to get here as well. Yeah, it's around sort of 800 men, something like that, but it's substantially less than is the, the two and a half thousand which are supposed to be there. Uh, and the problem is, is very quickly, everyone else just can't get there because of resistance. And what happens is, of course, because you've got these subsequent lifts coming in, you've then got to protect those landing zones and make sure that the Germans don't get hold of them. So part of your force is then protecting your landing zones for the subsequent force. Whereas actually, if you'd just not bothered having the second lift and you could have just sent all of them straight in, then actually it might have worked. You know, that's the crazy thing about it. And what then happens is you've then got this pocket at the edge of town at Oosterbeek where they just can't get through to Frost. So Frost and his 800 men here, very quickly, completely surrounded. Then you've got the main bulk of the division and the bulk of the men also surrounded at Oosterbeek. And <laughs> actually what happens is at Nijmegen, they're also completely surrounded. So everyone's getting completely surrounded. And the whole thing is just starting to unravel very, very quickly. You hear a lot about the radio. I mean, things started to go wrong. The Germans got involved. <laughs> Always yeah. a nightmare when the enemy shows up on the battlefield. Yeah. What else starts to go wrong? Communications. I mean, you know, as we know from pretty much every aspect of military history, if you can't communicate with your men properly, how the hell do you fight a battle? And uh, the radio sets here, they have problems with them. I mean, men can talk from platoon to platoon, company to company, within battalions. Pretty much beyond that, that's where the big problems are. So it means the senior commanders can't really cohesively manage their forces on the ground. And it means that generals like Urquhart has to go off and find out. He makes this decision to go off on a cook's tour to wander around the streets of Arnhem to see what the situation is. Um, gets himself into a bit of trouble and, and gets locked up in an attic of a house at a key moment in the battle. So the whole command and control of the situation around Oosterbeek and towards the bridge is lost. So the commander of the British 1st Airborne Division is locked up in an attic yep. you know, because of German troops nearby without any radio communication? Absolutely. Yep with nothing, not even pigeons. Uh, he's got no way of communicating with anyone. And as far as the guys at uh, the Hartenstein Hotel, which was their airborne headquarters are concerned, for all they know, he's dead or he's taken prisoner. So uh, an argument breaks out between the, the ranking brigadiers as to who is the, uh, the senior guy on the ground, but that only adds to the problems they have with the cohesion of the, of the forces. So really the plan now having gone wrong gets worse because there's no clear direction from the top. But famously, one small body of, of British troops does manage to get through to the bridge, doesn't it? It does, yeah. They take the lower route, which the Germans have ignored. They've blocked some of the upper routes, the obvious ones, in, into Arnhem. 2nd Battalion Parachute Regiment under Lieutenant Colonel Frost, plus some supporting units. Major Goff from the recce squadron, some of his men get there. Uh, there's some engineers. Um, there's some gunner liaisons. There's uh, military police and so on. They're all part of the force of 800 or so men that, that defend that area, um, that critical area around the bridge. 
everyone else has to try and get there and, and sadly fail. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So, amazingly, of the thousands of men that would be dropped here on Arnhem, they do actually get a group of 800 to that. They do complete the task given to them. They do. They get there, they dig in, they set up their weapons, uh, heavy machine guns, mortars, anti-tank guns to guard the ramp to the bridge, the approaches to the bridge. And it's a pretty secure setup that they've got there, which is why they're able to hold for, for all those days. Germans try and retake the bridge, do they? There's the Grabner attack, which is a, um, another one of these battle groups with armoured cars, vehicles, trucks, ad hoc unit, uh, comes across the bridge, um, underestimating, uh, I think, the firepower that was up against them. I think one of the things that you see in many aspects of the Second World War, the Germans don't entirely understand British airborne forces and what they're capable of because they base it on their own Fallschirmjäger. So they don't realise that we've got anti-tank guns, that we've got mortars, that we've got heavy machine guns, we've got Piats. So we're able to give a good account of ourselves and knock that, that counter-attack back. So, on the morning of day two, yep. give me the situation on this battlefield. Well, uh, one group had got to the bridge. Uh, more, the second lift was coming in. Uh, fourth parachute brigade was coming in. So more men were arriving to push forward, to get into Arnhem, to form these blocking areas around the town to stop the Germans getting in. That was already not possible because the Germans had blocked us rather than us blocking them. So these men find themselves arriving, going straight into action, and then all hell is let loose. And 4th Parachute Brigade, for example, within 24 hours was down to just a handful of guys. Brigadier Hackett commanding it comes out in what became known as Hackett Hollow with a couple of hundred men, if that. And are they landing in landing zones which are now overlooked by German defenders? 
in some cases, but largely no, uh, because we've sent some other men from the division, uh, Seventh King's Own Scottish Board is an example of that, to guard some of these drop zones to protect them. So at this stage, there isn't so much uh, of that uh, happening, but when there's a lift, including some of the poles that come in, people forget that the poles actually came over the north side uh, of the lower Rhine into the Oosterbeek perimeter. They land into the midst of this battle with all hell's bells going on around them and no one knows who is who. So everybody is shooting at everybody and it's absolute chaos. Can you imagine coming down, parachuting down, realising that there's people shooting at you from the ground there's nothing you can do about it? No, absolutely nothing, no. And what must have been going through the minds of these guys, you know, having that short hop over the, the channel into the European continent to be thrown straight into a hot landing zone. Just incredible. And what about 30 Corps, the heavy tanks, the infantry, they're coming up this main, what they're coming up across all these bridges that have been captured by airborne troops. Are they, are they, are they on schedule? Do you know what? They're not on schedule, but they're not massively behind schedule either. So the first day is a slightly slow start and that's kind of a bit odd and I, I'm not, I can't really quite understand why it's not till two o'clock in the afternoon they get going. I mean, there's a barrage beforehand, there's a second uh, tactical air force which is coming in and doing lots of work, good work as well. Uh, and they're sort of following on behind all that. And they don't want to get to Eindhoven too soon because, you know, the 101st Airborne have got to do their bit. But even so, they're a bit sluggish to, you know, they, don't, they only go about six and a half miles on the first day and they've got to do 60 in total. Having said that, when they do get to Eindhoven, they find that the bridge at Zon has been blown up and so they've got to bridge that and they do bridge that on the first night you know it's really really impressive on the night of the 18th it is bridged and the following day on the 19th so day three of, of market garden they then really surge forward and by the afternoon they're in they're at Nijmegen you know they've, they've got there and when they get there they discover that the 82nd airborne hasn't yet captured the main bridge going across the River Vaal at Nijmegen. And it's absolutely bizarre because what's happened is General Jim Gavin, who is the command, American commander of the 82nd Airborne, has focused entirely on, or, or the bulk of his troops have been focusing on the Grosbeek Heights. Uh, and although we're here and it all looks nice and flat, actually this part of Holland is a little bit hilly. And the Grosbeek Heights are a substantial feature. And his worry is that to the east of that is the Reichswald, this sort of German forest through which the Germans can counterattack. And he who has the high ground and all the rest of it holds all the aces. So that's his thinking behind it. But the problem with that is that obviously if the Germans manage to successfully get a foothold onto the Grosbeek Heights, Market Garden might fail. But if you don't get the bridge, it 100% will fail. So the number one priority for the 82nd Airborne is to get those bridges. And very interestingly, there's one of the bridges that they have to capture is a grave. And they very carefully drop troops at both ends of this bridge, take it no problem whatsoever, it's job done. When it comes to the bridge at Nijmegen, he sort of half-heartedly sends in a little company and says, you know, just go and take that bridge. You know, there's not enough support for it. They fall back. And when actually, if it had been a concentrated effort, they'd have absolutely walked it. So when the 30 Corps get there, the bridge is still not in their hands. Bizarrely, the Germans haven't blown it up. And so they then have to mount this major operation the following day, which is the famous crossing of the Vaal by the 82nd Airborne and these little dinghies that they go across under heavy fire, lots of them get killed. Peter Carrington uh, of the Armoured Guard Division, later Lord Carrington of Thatcher's government, is the first man across in his tank and all the rest of it, you know, and they finally get through on the night of the 20th. But 
They should have been across on the 19th. Absolutely no problem. Had they been across on the 19th and then charged across to Arnhem on the 20th, what a different picture. So at the bridge, though, Colonel Frost presumably is, is holding out with his men. He's holding on. They've formed quite a tight defensive perimeter. They've come under a counter-attack, which they've thrown back. And he's got anti-tank weapons there. So to start with, he's, he's reasonably secure. But the Germans obviously ramp up the attacks against him and he starts to lose casualties, he starts to run out of ammunition, the buildings that they're defending gradually get destroyed. He's got one plus in that he has got a radio link to the guns, the airborne landing artillery around Oosterbeek Church, so he can call in defensive artillery fire to protect some of his positions. But gradually, despite all that, the situation is untenable and their positions are overrun. But that is some of the fiercest fighting that any British unit saw during the Second World War, would you say? You know, we often talk about heroes, but when you look at the story of that bridge and what those men went through for the days that they were there, it is quite incredible. Completely surrounded, no apparent hope of anyone arriving, not just 30 Corps, but your own guys getting to you. Uh, and they've got to improvise, they've got to carry on, and they've got to throw the Germans back or their positions are overrun. It is just incredible when you look at that story. Once Frost is overrun, on the north end of Arnhem Bridge, what is there left to fight for? Because the bridge is back in German hands. It is, but I think a decision by this stage had already been made that we can't get to them. Um, hopefully they'll hold out, but we need to make sure that we hold out as well, because somewhere along the line, 30 Corps, the ground troops are going to meet up with us, we hope. So a decision is made to pull back into the urban environment of, of Oosterbeek. Um, Which we're walking on the edge of now. We are, yeah. I mean, it's a, a posh little Arnhem suburb pull back into that and form a defensive line, a pocket, uh, which you can uh, defend with your backside on the lower Rhine, so the Germans can't surround you, and then utilising the streets and the positions and the layout of the roads here, set up a defensive position you can hold until you're relieved. So the, the fighting at Oosterbeek became you know, the, the stuff of, of legend, didn't it? It did. In the cauldron, the Devil's Cauldron, they pulled back into the streets of this posh, middle-class suburb of Oosterbeek and defended those streets. And it wasn't just street-to-street -street fighting, house-to-house -house fighting, fighting in built-up areas, as they call it now. It was room-to-room -room fighting, where they were blowing holes, mouse-holing their way from one room to another, where one room would be full of SS, say, and then some guys from the glider pilot regiment and another, they'd blow a hole in the wall, fight their way through that room, throw the Germans out, and then a couple of hours later, the Germans would try and do the same sort of thing. And there was a lot of grenades used, there was bayonets, submachine guns, um, but phosphorus as well, the Germans fired a lot of phosphorus grenades. One of the old vets I had with me once, uh, he still had the, the burns on his skin that came out as dark marks as he got older, these sort of ghostly marks from his past here at Arnhem in 1944. So these were tough battles. Is there any chance that that enclave here on the north bank of the Rhine, could, could that have held out indefinitely or was there just, were they, were they condemned men? There's no way they could have held out indefinitely because the resupply was pretty good, but it was being dropped in the wrong place. And the, what they needed for, in terms of equipment, food, material, ammunition and so on was just not arriving. They were running out of this stuff. Um, and gradually the Germans were getting nearer and nearer, pushing them back street by street, house by house. Initially the Germans had been cocky but they'd learnt from those lessons um, and there was more armour coming in. I mean, they even had King Tigers here at the end of the, uh, the Oosterbeek battle, but held back 
by the artillery of 30 Corps, which by this time had linked up with the airborne guys and they were able to give them a bit of extra protective fire. So the heavy guns, the tanks of 30 Corps, are now on the south bank. There's the river between them, but there's no bridge. <laughs> no bridge and no possibility of getting a bridge across there and, and to what purpose? Because you've got this little enclave, why hold on to it? Just pull the survivors back and hold the ground until you can fight again. By the 25th, it's all over and they have that night, they, uh, they pull back and cross the, uh, across the river. 1,700 men managed to get out out of, you know, whatever it is, 8,000 in the 1st Airborne Division plus the, the, the Polish Brigade. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's a fiasco. Montgomery said it was 90% successful. Yeah, well, I think that's fair enough. I mean, you know, <laughs> the problem, of course, with that is that it's the 10% failing bit is the bit that really hurts. I mean, it's, is it one of those binary ones where, unfortunately, it's either all or nothing? I mean, did they, get, did they gain anything from it? No, not really. Sadly not, no. And for, and for the poor folk of, of Arnhem, you know, they, Arnhem doesn't get, get liberated until April 1945. You have the hunger winter, you know, where Dutch portion of the Dutch population are being completely starved. I mean, absolutely horrific. Uh, the war goes on. As you know, it was sort of completely brutal. Winter of 1944 into the winter of 1945 and spring of 1945 were absolutely horrific here in, in, in Northern Europe. By, by casualty figures alone, by proportion, it's one of... Britain's most devastating defeats in the Second World War. It is, and when we speak about casualties, we think they're all dead, but in this case, the vast majority were prisoners of war because these men were wounded, their positions were overrun. There were some lads from the border regiment, for example, who never got the order that a withdrawal was coming in, and all of a sudden they found the Germans behind them. So they were taken prisoner to, uh, to a man. So there was many months of him as prisoners of war ahead of these men. And when the time came to withdraw from this perimeter here, back across the Rhine, was there, were there boats available? Were they swimming? How are they getting back? Well, well, you know, I know from the study of military history that often Britain's very good at withdrawals. <laughs> it can't actually fight a proper battle, but getting away from it, uh, they're pretty good. Gallipoli in the First World War, Dunkirk at the beginning of the Second, and, and here at uh, Operation Market Garden. So some men swam the Rhine. One of the veterans I knew, he got down there, he saw that men had been dragged under the water by keeping their webbing gear and all their full kit on, so he stripped off down to his underpants. And I remember saying to him, well, hang on a minute, you know, you're wearing your airborne beret, you told me that's your original one. He said, it is. I said, well, what did you do with it? He said, I stuffed it in my underpants, and then I swam the Rhine. But others couldn't swim, um, so uh, they went in boats. The Royal Canadian Engineers sent men over uh, with assault boats to come pick these guys up and take them across and 2000 uh, got away. So that was a successful end to it, but Operation Market Garden had not achieved its final objective. Was it worth it? Well, I think it was worth the punt, I really do. I'm, I'm not a sort of massive Montgomery basher. You know, I think you've got this first Allied Airborne Army. You've got all those guys that are, are, are really pumped. They're, they're motivated. They're super well trained. Um, they're able to use their initiative. You've got that capacity. You've got a chance. It's a very good chance. I mean, there's a lot of things that need to go right. But what is amazing about it is it nearly, nearly gets pulled off. You know, they're so close. Uh, and actually, you know, there's a whole host of factors that, that mean that it doesn't happen. But one of the things I think is, is is hardest to get one's head around is the organisation of the lifts. I mean, I think that's quite. I think that's quite hard. I mean, you know, if you haven't got the capacity to do all the lifts in one day, then just don't bother. You know, uh, it, it, you could have used all those guys that were defending the landing zones to attack Arnhem on day one, and that were, you know, day one is is when you have your moment of surprise. An Akudaman operation, which is how you should be using airborne troops, that's when you want to strike hardest. And they're not able to because of 
you know, they're defending the landing zone. They can only apportion a, a certain amount of troops. The second big thing is this thing is what, of why the 82nd Airborne don't capture the bridge at Nijmegen right from the outset. And that is just, I, I just can't get my head around it. I, I just don't understand what Gavin was thinking. You've met so many veterans, you've returned with them to these battlefields. Are they, are they angry about what happened here? Are they angry at their commanders? Or, or did, for them, was this just the, the rub of the green? Well, I think there's an element of that, but I think they're, they're critical of some of them. Their, their feeling was that they perhaps were let down. Some of the airborne guys feel perhaps 30 Corps could have done more. That's inter-army rivalry in many respects, which you're going to get anywhere. They were men who had volunteered to fight in the airborne forces. Their job was to be surrounded. Their job was to be in battles like this. And they hoped that what they'd achieved here and the sacrifice that they'd made helped pile that way to victory, which eventually, in a roundabout way, it did. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.